Welcome to episode 5 of Bitcoin and Markets, a show where I discuss Bitcoin, geopolitics, and liberty. Today, we have a good one lined up. I'm going to give you an update on the Dow, then talk about regulation as a prison for the banks. Then I'm going to go over an article by the former chief economist of Morgan Stanley in Asia and his thoughts on the global situation. My name is Ansel Lindner. Stay tuned. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. You can find all the links to the stuff I talk about in the show notes on the website, bitcoinmarkets.com, or you can check the description below wherever you're listening to this. All right, time for a DAO update. Now, I the last episode was basically all I knew about the DAO, and, you know, I'm just learning just like most of you out there. Uh, so it's, it's a learning process, but there's some new new news about what's going on here. A ton has happened this week, so I thought I'd give you an update. All right. If you want to check out all that stuff that I said before, you can go my episode number four, everything I know about the Dow. And, you know, it it's not perfect, but it, it gives you an understanding of what's happening because a lot of people just, oh, look, it's been in 15 publications or it, people are talking about it everywhere. So it must be good. Well, this you know, hopefully I, I gave you some uh, foundation to evaluate some of this stuff with. All right, so the new news, Slocket, the team behind the DAO, they actually made created the DAO. Uh, they've released a blog post that details their what's going to be their proposal for DAO version 1.1. <laughs> I thought it was, of course, this is exactly what happened. I thought it was interesting because Slocket, they're paying themselves. Of course. They say, oh, these need, these are things that we need to do for the DAO. And we need 125,000 Ether. Which at, let's just say, $10 an Ether for argument's sake, that's a $1.25 million that they need from the DAO for this one proposal and this one version update. Um yeah, so of course they're paying themselves. Christopher Getz, I think that's how you say his name, he's the author of the white paper and the, the creator of the framework. Um, he's also CTO at Slocket, and he's being paid to be like on 24-7 bug watch or security watch or something like that. So, I mean, of course they're paying themselves. Uh, this, they've already cornered the market, uh, the DAO, for these this legal services, right? Because they created DAO Link. And this that DAO link is how kind of the DAO is represented in Germany and Switzerland and legally how it's represented. So they already fill that role. They're going to be sucking lots of ether out of the DAO for that. But this is increasingly looking like a scam. I can't believe people like think that this is these are honest people. <laughs> it's turning into just a, a funnel of money from the Dow to Slocket. And I listen, I watched a, uh, or watched, I listened to podcast Epicenter Bitcoin this last week where they interviewed Stephen Toole. He's the COO of Slocket. 
Uh, he's also, you know, really a big pumper for the Dow. Uh, man, is this guy slimy. He just comes across as very slimy, like a, a really shady salesman. And, uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff he said was way out of touch with reality. So either he's delusional or he's a con man. And I think he's a straight-up con man is what he is. I don't know about these brothers or whoever the the, te the German part of this is, the Getz, uh, the Getz people, but they, I don't know, they could be con men, but this Stephen Toole is definitely shady character. Um, I follow the Slocket Project on Twitter, and so they had posted, or, uh, yeah, tweeted uh, this news article from Zeit Online. It's a German publication. And the headline was something like the first company without people. Own a mention. No, no people. And uh, so, of course, I had to respond to that because if you listen to my last episode, you know that this is totally centralized and dependent on human being interaction. So, it, of course, it has people. And of they they tweeted it out like, look at this great article that we're in. Well, no correction saying, no, 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 there's people here. There's lots of people. The, the DAO needs people to function. It's not like this DAO is without people. And so I, I, that's, that would be the good response that they should, they should have sent into this paper, this uh, publication, but they did not do that. So I tweeted at him. I said, hey, this is suspicious. You need to correct this. And of course, no response for them. They, they had a couple, a couple of the Dow minions tweeted at me and it was like t trying to convince me that this was, didn't need people. But remember, the Dow is centralized and it's only semi-autonomous. It's not a decentralized autonomous organization. That is doublespeak. And when you, when you have a, a project that is blatant doublespeak in your face, you know it's a scam. And they, they won't even correct things like this Zeit Online article. It pisses me off. God. Okay, so now there's a update also on the... I, I understand the staking process better. So the DAO is, is kind of... It's kind of a proof-of-stake model where you stake your Ether and you get these DAO tokens that you can use for voting and, and ownership of the quote-unquote profits that would ever come back to the DAO. Um, so I, I understand this process a little bit more, how you get your Ether out. And you need to follow this confusing proposal process. So you actually need to submit a proposal. You get on the whitelist of the curators to get your ether sent to you as a whitelisted curator. And this process could take 28 days, people. That's not good for speculators. I mean, 90% of these DAO tokens are, are pure speculation. And so it's not good for these people. I don't... I doubt that they were told. I don't think this came up. I mean, it was, it's not in the white paper. I doubt that this came up like you'd have to wait 28 days. And there's a possibility that you won't get it back. Because now the curators are going on strike. The curators are going on strike. This Vlad guy, he's a, the proof of stake leader or team lead for Ethereum. He's on, he's a curator. And now he's out there calling for moratorium on proposals. So what that's basically doing, you won't be able to get your ether out. 
And of course, they're not going to try to pass anything. But this is exactly what I said on my last episode was if a, if the curator goes on strike, the DAO is dead. It cannot do anything. It needs people. And how can these these minions out there on Twitter and elsewhere uh, on the exchanges, they they're thinking that this is like decentralized and they think that there's oh it's completely autonomous it's only with voting tokens is you know it doesn't need people and it's way different than a, having a ceo of a company yada 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 bs this is centralized 100 percent. now i think this is a good step forward i mean we are as a community as a as the bitcoin community we're learning a lot here the world is learning a lot from the dow so I think it's worthwhile, but please, people, don't lose your money on this. All right. Um, now, another thing here is Lisk. I just wanted to give a quick blurb here about Lisk. It looks like this Lisk is a, uh, it's not a fork of Ethereum. I thought it was a fork of Ethereum, but it's uh, similar to Ethereum, and they just launched this week. I don't know much about it. Uh, other than I would, did watch an interview with like the founder, so uh, I'll I'll maybe do another episode. If you guys want to hear an episode on Lisk, comment please or or contact me on Twitter, and I'll do an episode, at least uh, part of an episode on Lisk, and I'll I'll research that for you. So uh, hit me up. Okay, so there's this great YouTube channel called uh, Renegade Investor. It's uh, not sure the guy's name. He's out of New York. Uh, sorry, uh, United Kingdom. And yeah, he has some really great content. He recently did a comparison between the movie Final Destination and the financial crisis, which I thought was really cool. Like, so Bitcoin is this death or this black swan event that is tracking the bankers through. Uh, from 2008 when they cheated death. So I thought that was really interesting and really fun to watch. So you guys should check that out. I also follow him on Twitter and he had a really great comment that got my gears turning. Um, and he said that the banks are in a regulatory prison. And that's very insightful because, you know, the regulation was defined to keep competition out to put them into a place of security right and now all of this innovation that's happening with bitcoin and other fintech uh that's going around this uh these regulations and this regulatory framework they are locking the banks inside of that regulation so the banks are licensed they can't do anything to jeopardize their license it is the most regulated industry um, so, I mean, they have decades of this financial regulation just for the security benefit of licensing and keeping this competition out so that they can keep you in their value chain and keep you giving them money uh, or sucking off your bank account. Well, now they, with all this fintech, they are stuck. They cannot innovate because they are locked inside of this regulation like a prison. I thought that was a very insightful comment. 
and we will see more and more of this. I mean, um, they will probably lobby to get a lot of this stuff taken off, a lot of these regulations taken off, especially in the next crisis that we're approaching. It's going to be a turning point where uh, in the 2008, they they took off some regulations, they added some others, they kind of tailored the regulation to the time that they that they were experiencing. But uh, in, in the future, we're going to see more and more deregulation because they know that they're in this prison and they can't get out. Um, they cannot compete and the only way they can compete actually right now is to lock it in tighter to to expand the definitions of money and securities and things like that to cover more things but as you regulate more it, it becomes more and more expensive it comes uh, the burden to enforce it on the government side and the bank side becomes way more taxing and so they're just boxing themselves more and more in so I can see this going two ways. Uh, if they are smart, they'll deregulate. Uh, if they are uh, going to double down on this regulation, they're going to make it more and more expansive. The definitions are going to get uh, larger and larger to cover these fintech inventions and Bitcoin and blockchains and all that kind of stuff. But Bit so Bitcoin, where does Bitcoin sit in this? Well, it is in the prime spot to disrupt them. Because the more regulations they put on it, the nastier it will get. The more uh, anonymous, the more private, the more secure the network will get. And if they deregulate, it's just going to let Bitcoin grow that much faster and become that much more widely adopted. So Bitcoin is in this great position to benefit off of anything they try to do. The only thing that they can try to do is buy Bitcoin so that they will be in a better spot when... Uh, Bitcoin jumps up in value, which it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy because they will buy up the price or they'll bid up the price. So, uh, yeah, Bitcoin is in a great position and it is just going to blow right past these banks. In the next two, three years, Bitcoin's innovation is just going to blow their doors off. The banks are going to be, in three years from now, the banks are still going to be talking about private blockchains and bank chains. And Bitcoin's going to be, you know, at uh, 5,000 transactions a second with a Lightning Network. There's going to be so much innovation in that space. And uh, it's it's just going to be, it's the difference. I mean, Bitcoin already makes banks look like 1500s, right, technology. Well, the, uh, this next three years, oh my gosh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to separate. I mean, Bitcoin is just going to accelerate. And the banks are going to stay almost exactly where they are. It's it's going to be incredible to watch. But yeah, that that uh, comment from Renegade Investor really got my gears turning. So check out his YouTube channel and uh, follow him on Twitter. All right, guys, what's next? Um, we could talk about Tragedy Commons, or I could save that till next time. We could talk about G7, the G7 meeting that just came up. I'm going to check my Twitter here, see if I shared anything good. Uh, oh, this is a really good post. It is from the South China Morning Post, written by Andy Z or Yi. 
XIE. He's the former Morgan Stanley chief Asia Pacific economist. And so he posted this op-ed there way back in March, right after the last G20 meeting that was happening in February, which, uh, you know, was right after that bad January and February time on, on the global stock markets. So, and they, all these, uh, high ranking financial officials from all of these G20 countries got together and this was his reaction to it. I thought, I, I think it's fascinating because this is an insider's look at this meeting. I mean, Morgan Stanley, they don't know blockchains as we established in episode three, but they do know the international markets, so this is this is pretty pretty interesting. And what struck me most when I was reading this article was their total hatred for the people. I, I mean, hatred's a strong word. They they think we are deranged. They think we have psychological problems. We're not spending. We're not producing. For some reason, they can't figure it out. They don't blame themselves. Oh no. The bankers and the elites, their policies were right. It's the deranged people that have made this problem. They take no responsibility whatsoever on themselves. And they cannot figure it out. So anyway, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here and then we will discuss. The G20 Working Group meeting in Shanghai didn't come up with any constructive proposals for reviving the global economy and instead complained that the recent market turmoil didn't reflect the, quote, underlying fundamentals of the global economy. The oil price has declined by 70% since June of 2014, while the Brazilian real has halved, and the Russian ruble is down by 60%. The global economy is on the cusp of another recession, and these important people blamed it all on some sort of psychological problem of the people. Over the past two decades, the global economy has been blessed with the entry and participation of 800 million hardworking Chinese, plus the information revolution. The pie should have increased enough in size to make most people happier. Yet the opposite has happened. The world has gone from one crisis to another. People are complaining everywhere. This is due to mismanagement by the very people who attend the G20 meetings, the Davos boondoggle and so many other global meetings that waste taxpayers' money and put inept leaders in the limelight. All right, now the emphasis there was obviously added, um, but this is from a major economist working for Morgan Stanley. He's the chief economist in the Asia-Pacific region for Morgan Stanley, or a former chief economist. And he's saying that the elites at this G20 summit are, are, they are, quote, blaming it all on some sort of psychological problem of the people. I mean, they have a contempt for the people. We are doing something wrong. And then he has another good point there is that uh, eight, after 800 million hardworking Chinese plus the internet revolution, and I would say plus probably 50 trillion worldwide of stimulus, right? We are not better off. People are rioting all over the world. We have riots. Governments have toppled because their people are upset. 
Their people are so much worse off than they were just a generation ago. That governments are being toppled. Europe has a horrible immigration crisis. They're having riots everywhere. There's riots in the U.S. elections. Venezuela is being toppled. One after the next, we're seeing these countries get rolled over. One after another, we're seeing these countries rise up because they're unhappy. After all of this stimulus, all of these new productive people coming into the world economy, and the internet revolution on top of that. So yes, we have cell phones, we have our smartphones, we have our apples and our androids, and we have our uh, new cars, our new Teslas, um, we have all of these new solar energy uh, capabilities, all of these new things, new tech. But the people are revolting against their governments, against their elites. And these people at the G20, they see themselves as not part of the people. Because, so they see them, they, they recognize this class divide. Because they specifically are saying in here that they think, quote unquote, the people have a psychological problem. I don't think they would say they have a psychological problem. They're, they're separating themselves as a class. They think they are a different class. Oh my God. So the economy, we've pumped in all this money, we have all these new people and all this new tech, we should be at a, in a much better place, on a much more sus sustainable path. But the world economy is very, very fragile. And that's because of the misallocation of capital or malinvestment. And all of these things, you know, you see the elites, you see the, the real estate market, uh, property in New York, property in London, uh, art yachts luxury goods not productive assets i mean these things are being people are investing in stocks with pe ratios at 30 40 50. these stock companies they buy back their shares with money they get at zero percent to pump up the price of their stock they don't have to be innovative or provide value to other people or to their customers because they acquire, they merger, they buy back their shares. There's no actual new business going on except for maybe a handful of companies. That's it. I mean, if you take Apple out of uh, all those stock market calculations, we're in dire, dire straits. They have the four big ones, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And I would add apple in there if you take those guys out the stock market sucks people it's probably down 40 percent over the last six months if you take out those stocks because all of the free and cheap money's going into these luxury goods into stocks the companies are putting this uh they're malinvesting this free money back and doing buybacks on their shares so none of this is real right and he points that out and then of course the the elites blame the people for having psychological problems all right let's read on 
The most important factor in the rigged system is monetary policy being used to pump up financial markets in the name of stimulating growth for people's benefit. This is essentially the trickle-down wealth effect, that is, making some people in, financial, in the financial food chain rich while the spillover gives people a few crumbs. Yet, instead of crumbs, the wealth effect has pumped up property prices in Manhattan, London, Hong Kong, as well as the price of modern art. Essentially, the wealth effect has stayed within the small circle of the wealthy, and these people show up at Davos to congratulate policymakers on their quote-unquote quote success. Wasting resources is an equally important factor in making the global economy weak and prone to crisis. After the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve spent trillions of dollars to bail out the people who created the crisis instead of facing bankruptcy and jail. These people have become richer than ever. Predictably, they have used their resources to rig the system further. After 2008, when Beijing launched a massive investment push, the global ruling elite all praised China for saving the global economy. China has increased credit by over $20 trillion to finance the construction of factories and homes. However, investment does not guarantee final demand. The process of building up a factory creates demand, but when it is completed, it needs to sell its goods to someone. What China did was build even more factories to keep this factory occupied. This Ponzi scheme couldn't last long. They are just seeing the beginnings of its devastating consequences. China's overinvestment has pumped up commodity prices, which has led to another Ponzi scheme. As major central banks cut interest rates to zero, credit demand didn't respond in general as businesses didn't see growing demand from people who were suffering income erosion. The commodity boom justified credit demand for the time being. Trillions of dollars were poured into the energy sector, and trillions more into the commodity industries. Businesses in general, or sorry, businesses in emerging economies that were pumped up by rising commodity prices borrowed $9 trillion. This mountain of debt is floating on a commodity Ponzi scheme that is floating on China's investment Ponzi scheme. Its bursting is just beginning. Its impact on the global financial system could be bigger than the 2008 financial crisis. In addition to the bursting of the global commodity bubble, China's overcapacity bubble will kill global capital expenditure for many years to come. Even though Chinese investment isn't growing like before, investment at half its gross domestic product is still adding overcapacity by over $1 trillion per year. $1 trillion per year. The problem is getting bigger. All, indi all indications are that China wants to export the overcapacity. And why not? China over-invested to bail out the global economy. It shouldn't pay the whole price for the mistake. China's strategy would lead to the de will le would lead to the deindustrialization in most of the world. In particular, middle-income emerging economies, weak capital expenditure would leak to weak employment. Sorry. Weak capital expenditures would lead to weak employment and labor income 
the resulting bankruptcies may further weaken the global credit system. So that's exactly what we see. We're starting to see trade wars and protectionism flaring up around the world. Uh, I talked about the steel tariffs that we've seen going back and forth. There has been some recent news on that. Perhaps on the next uh, episode I'll give an update. But yeah, so China's strategy now, after they dumped all of this free credit into the system, into their country, the economy, to save the world from this collapse, what's happened? Well, now they have all this overcapacity, so what are they going to do? They're going to dump it on the world market and make everybody pay. And it's going to lead to uh, factories in other countries shutting down, mothballs collecting, people uh, going out of work, people not going into those professions. I mean, the systemic type of dislocations are going to be huge and the systemic dislocations have been huge already in the last eight years but remember it the people have a psychological problem all right so he has some more good stuff to say let's read on the global economy is facing years of stagnation deflation and financial crises the current economic managers will resort to the same tricks of pumping up the financial markets with liquidity to no avail. In the meantime, political instability will spread around the world. It will take a long time for the right leaders to emerge. Initially, populists will win, and we see that in the United States elections now. Their policies, unfortunately, will focus on protectionism and rolling back the World Trade Organization system, and we can see that exactly with Trump and probably with Bernie Sanders, right? This rise of these populists. Uh, protectionism may suddenly jumpstart inflation and will quickly become hyperinflation, which would certainly lead to violent revolutions. The world is on the cusp of a prolonged period of stagnation and instability. Our ruling elite is blaming it on people seeing things. <sighs> blaming it on people seeing things. Their strategy is to change people's psychology. Unfortunately for them, the world is catching fire, and that fire will eventually reach their Davos chalets. I, I, this link is in the show notes. You guys should read this. Um, I've read it a couple times now, and it is it makes some really good points. Uh, this last point about um, revolution or the protectionism leading to inflation, I think that's totally possible. Um, oh, and the ruling elite blaming it on the people's psychology so i think it's interesting when you look at some of the things that's going that are going on with the fed uh, and how they're trying to manipulate the the financial markets right so uh, a couple years ago they maybe it was when janet yellen came around i don't remember exactly when but it's the mantra switched um to data driven you know, and you'll recognize that phrase. Everything is supposed to be data-driven. This is a data-driven Fed. It's We're data-driven. We'll see what the data say. And that's because, I think, my opinion, is that they are trying to build this connection that they don't have a choice. And that also that you can be, you can see what's coming. If you look at the unemployment numbers if you look at the inflation numbers if you look at the housing numbers and the the indus the uh, any economic number that you want to look at you can have the insider information just like the Fed. so you know what they're going to do 
and leading up to meetings you can see this now they've even gone so far as to put these the predictions the percentage of people that think this is going to happen uh, rate rise or whatever the case is and so you can see that it's all about the data and where does the data come from it comes from the government these are all government numbers and if, if they're not government they're long-term private organizations that are probably have uh, get their original data from the government um, there are some organizations out there that are independent but they're long-term and they probably have been infiltrated to some degree that happens all the time all of these numbers are rigged I mean I, don't even get me started on the inflation anybody that's been to the grocery store recently knows that the inflation is higher than 1% they know it's higher than what we're being told so the inflation is bogus the unemployment rate is bogus because there's uh, look at the uh, people that have dropped out of the labor force right the labor participation rate and so this total bogus bogus numbers bogus inflation number bogus unemployment rate and the granddaddy of them all a bogus interest rate that is where the moral foundation for all of these bullshit numbers come from I ha if you have the moral foundation or the moral correctness to set an interest rate which is a market price it's market information if you have the moral correctness to do that or the moral right the moral duty then you have the moral right and the moral duty to make all of these other numbers bogus because you will rationalize it as I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing I'm doing what's good for the economy but it's all manipulated and it's a vicious cycle because when do you start believing your own data how do you get the correct data you've set up these systems to manipulate all of the collecting of this data so when do you how do you know what's real if you're if you're a market maker or a policy setter you can't they set the interest rate to manipulate to get their uh, their to meet their goals of their policy so it, all of this data manipulation start the root of it is manipulating the interest rate and that is in the open obviously that's what they do is set the interest rate so I mean it's it's morally in line with that same principle if I manipulate the interest rate, why can't I manipulate these other, these other statistics? Plus, I mean, you can see the, the moral compass of these politicians in the first place. They stand up there and they make promise after promise after promise on the stump. But then when they get into office and they're really doing this, then they, they are met with lobbyists and special interest groups and they can't they change or maybe they didn't change maybe they just lied the whole time which i i tend to agree with so that that's my take I, this article was great and you can see how my gears turn and i try to connect all these things that are going on 
at the same time. But I'll put the link to this in the show notes. Please check that out. That's going to do it. This this rant went on longer than I wanted it to. So this is episode 5 of Bitcoin and Markets. Thanks for joining me. Please share this around with people you think would enjoy it. Also, comment on Twitter or on, on SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this and uh, with suggestions for the show, whatever you guys want to hear me rant about, I don't care. That's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. The millennials are gonna fucking wake up. They're gonna get their shit together. No, I, I don't think it's gonna lead to all-out war. No, it, no, you'll have cyber wars and economic wars and proxy wars. Yeah, but no, nuclear weapons have put an end to all-out war. Yeah. Well, maybe I don't know. We, they gotta get their shit together. <laughs>